Good morning, beloveds of God. We are going to pray before we get started because really and truly none of you want to hear what I have to say if we're not praying first. So let's go to God. Uh, Gracious one, we are uh, honored to be with you. We're grateful for your presence among us. Even before we were here gathered in this space, we know that you had gone ahead of us and that your spirit was preparing us and this time together for what you have to teach us. We ask that we would be humble-hearted, and that we might receive your mercy from your hand. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Have you ever had a moment where things were falling apart? You didn't really know what to do about it, how to react to it? Maybe it was something that you did that you uh, regretted, and in an attempt to try and survive, you reverted to a former version of yourself. It's possible that you're not the kind of person who has a lot of like personal crises, but most of us know that feeling when the heat starts to kick up, when challenges become ever-present and heavy in our minds, when life starts to fall apart, when challenges come, when we find ourselves in the middle of our own mistakes, It's easy to place blame outside of ourselves, to start separating ourselves from other people. This is a common human instinct, an attempt to avoid the shame and the repercussions that we anticipate are coming for us. Often this is driven by our own fear, a fear of which drives our actions and our reactions. Right now, there might be any number of things that are on your mind, making you feel as if things are falling apart. And when we are in that kind of a place, it is easy to fall back on old patterns and systems, reverting to previous or maybe even childish ways of living. Those hardships usually come in three flavors, I think. Internal, community, and in the world and systems at large. Within ourselves, we often have crises about our emotional and mental health, the status of where our mind and our hearts are at, might lead us to constant uncertainty about the decisions that we make, might mean that we're not totally honest with ourselves. It might mean we're carrying too much weight for other people. We think we can stand up underneath it. Or maybe we're just waiting for the proverbial shoe to drop. The crises in our communities might mean being afraid for the church and the work of faith, not necessarily about the strength of it, but our concerns about how it will continue. Maybe you're noticing the pressure because of a loss of faith in your family, your children or your grandchildren your nieces and your nephews, maybe people you don't even know, but you feel that loss. Maybe it's a fear of what will happen to this particular community in the future. You've put so much blood and sweat and tears, time and love, and you worry about what's going to come next. Then there are the outside hardships, the world pressures the challenges that they bring, pressure to believe a certain thing in order to count as a Christian according to the 
expectations of other Christians. Pressure not to be honest about our deep life troubles because we're supposed to appear that things are going okay. Might even be a hardship of circumstance, unexpected financial need, medical debt, grocery prices, rent increases. When we are challenged, when personal or social hardships come, it is easy for us to fall back into old patterns of living. We make avoidance the order of the day. Well, the 12 disciples found themselves in a similar place to many of us. They were faced with a challenge and they were not on their best behavior. Jesus knew that a time of great internal and external challenges was coming for them. And we're going to reflect together on what Jesus does and says to these disciples in this moment of impending crisis. Our text is going to be from the end of Matthew 26, where the disciples are unknowingly participating in Passion Week, the last week of Jesus's life. The story just before this that we have is Jesus ordering them to make ready a room for them to celebrate the Passover, this religious festival to remind the Jewish people of their slavery in Egypt and God who set them free. And so the disciples that he ordered did so and prepared this meal for them. We're only going to read a short section of this, and so it's helpful for us to keep in mind the events of the whole week even in this short moment. This event is occurring just days after Jesus enters the city on the back of a donkey to much shouting and praise and acclaim. And as they sit at this table, I'm sure that the echoes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, still ring in their ears. They're riding the highs of the triumphs of this week of the entrance into Jerusalem, the cleansing of the temple, the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. And in that same mindset, they gather for this meal. They sit together lounging around the table, eating with their close friend and their spiritual teacher. It's a moment of great intimacy and a demonstration of their long-standing relationships now with each other, many years from our story last week. You can almost see them in your mind if you picture it, lounging around a low table, sacred festival meal set at the table, leaning back against each other to try to tell a story or repeat a joke that somebody said too quiet and you want to take the credit for it. It's this beautiful moment of their closeness. And this meal itself is a demonstration of their faith and their commitment to their faith practice. And for us, a glimpse into the closeness of these gathered disciples. This is not the first meal they've shared together. This isn't even the first Passover they've shared together. They've had many sacred and ordinary meals as a group. This is not new, but it is important. And it continues to remind them of their mutual faith in God, whose truths they see reflected in Jesus, maybe in ways they don't fully understand yet. This time of togetherness, learning under Jesus these years, did not turn them into different people, but rather their focus was sharpened and honed by the years between 
when they began this journey and now. They were more of a community in this moment of gathering than they had ever been before, but to be in that room meant that you knew something was about to happen. Perhaps they thought that the time for a political overthrow and a religious supremacy had come, and that this Messiah, who they believed to be Messiah, would finally step into that role as military and political leader, just as they had suspected. They understood Jesus wasn't telling them something, even though, of course, he had told them, but they didn't understand it. Uh, you could say that the room probably was tense, but I think maybe it was more about expectant. There was a, an awareness of the shift. Something is happening, and they don't yet know what it's going to be. They don't yet know what it looks like. This is a, a moment of calm before the storm, and that storm would bring about a dramatic death, a surprise resurrection, the fleeing of many of those gathered at this table, the betrayal of one who was one of their own leaders, Peter, who would deny Jesus three times. The time that was coming was so turbulent, those who were at the top would flee. But they don't really know what it's going to look like. And this gathered group from different backgrounds and contexts and education levels and work environments and religious and political beliefs had come to this shifting point. Things are about to get really difficult. What kind of people are they going to be? And what is Jesus going to do to help them through it? Let's read Matthew 26, 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. He then took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus has gathered the disciples in this moment to worship, to express their communal belief and faith. Jesus, of course, knows what is coming, both for him and for the disciples. He's aware of the challenges that are ahead. And as we hear this story and as we hear the words of Jesus, what does he say to them to bring them together? He's right to anticipate they're about to fall apart because mere hours from now, they will be fleeing in fear from soldiers. They will be speaking as if they did not know him. They will be watching him be crucified and then hiding for days and weeks in a small upper room, lost, confused, returning to their most contentious selves. It's even possible that at this point in the story, as they sit around this table because of the room's tension, that they're already beginning to backslide into that thinking. They've started bickering a bit, maybe whispering criticisms under their breath as they sit at this sacred meal. The problems for the disciples would come from their internal reaction to these issues, the struggles of their community and the world, threatening them in the sharing of the good news of Jesus. So in the face of all of this hardship, what does Jesus do? 
Well, his response has several things, I think, worth noticing for us in this text. In an effort to strengthen them, to equip them as a community, with one focus, he offers them three things. A shared meal, a mutual identity, and a communal touchstone. The shared meal is an ordinary, accessible kind of meal, intended to be repeated with a new purpose. It's not Passover, right? We don't have bitter herbs to dip in our wine, and there's not nearly enough cups of wine if we're supposed to be doing a Passover meal. But these two ordinary meal elements are now given a new purpose, a new intention. They had shared religious meals before, and now they had a new kind of religious meal. Not one exactly the same, but rather one expressing so many of those other elements of their faith. It connected each follower to this moment of Jesus' welcome at the table. And more incredibly, that meal is not just for them, but rather would be for many who would come after, whose names they would not know, whose faces they would never see. This shared meal that Jesus offers them in the face of this coming hardship is intended to drag them together, to gather them into a community of mutual equality. The common identity that they get here from Jesus is maybe a little more subtle, but we're pretty smart. We can figure that out, right? Jesus is taking two things, two religious elements they already associate with sacrifice and religious practice and offers them something distinct, something new from what they already knew about. These two elements of the meal would now not symbolize that someone was Jewish, as they were, but that they were followers of Jesus. To take the wine and the bread while remembering the words of Jesus, while looking forward to sharing them with Christ in the kingdom of God, to do those things is to now be a member of a new community, those who follow Christ. Because remember, this is not yet a memory of death or of resurrection, because Jesus is the one handing them these elements. At this moment, as they receive this, it is instead a new identity marker. To eat these items with purpose is to be a Christ follower. And for those gathered here, this is a new thing. They had been formally within the bounds of Judaism, their Jewish heritage, and their Jewish faith. But now they were those things and something else, something new. And it would even continue to shift as they begin to incorporate those who were Gentile into the kingdom of Jesus. And it would be this meal, these emblems, that expressed that identity, one that claimed to follow Christ. That identity would be significant, and it was for these soon-to-be-scattered disciples a reason to remain in community. There would not be any bickering about who was in and who was out. To take the shared meal is to share as an identifier those who belong to Christ. Just as simple as that. Then the communal touchstone we see in verse 28, where Jesus says his blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins. In bringing this reminder kind of to the front of this discussion, Jesus is giving them a maybe less than gentle reminder. They are people who have been forgiven. 
no exceptions. Because of that truth, they couldn't keep others out who wished to be a part of it. And maybe more crucially in this moment, they couldn't kick anybody in that circle right then out either. Because each of them, their presence is dependent upon that forgiveness. And so if they are present because of forgiveness, they can't bar somebody else from it because they've also received it as well. Each of them over the following days would act foolishly, ignorantly, and at times in fear and passivity to deny who they were and who they had become in Jesus. And this reminder of Jesus, who knows what is coming, tells them, just as you have no right to be here without forgiveness, so also because of forgiveness, your friends cannot be kept out. Those who have gathered here are welcomed not on your power. This is a touchstone of compassion. One more way that Jesus draws the disciples into one community. So we also struggle with this, as the disciples did with the challenges that make our days hard. Or the challenges of being in one community. The internal things make it hard for people to be around us when we're going through it. Churches and religious spaces are often places of harm more than their places of help. And the external threats often find it easier to target us when we travel in groups, right? Not to mention the fact that I have enough issues in my day today. Why would I want to add the responsibility of an entire community of people on top of that, even if I weren't doing this for a living, right? But if we are struggling in ways similar to those disciples, then it stands to good spiritual reason that we can follow what Jesus teaches them in this moment about how to stay in community with one another. Because division, that's easy. We can find a million ways to separate ourselves from one another. Distinguish ourselves, never look back, to stay away. For self-preservation, for frustrations, simply our own internal resistance to being held accountable and having to hold other people accountable. What is much harder than division is remaining close, to refocus and refocus and refocus, to orient ourselves to something that is both beyond us and within us. Like the disciples' final meal with Jesus, the table that we gather around has unifying power, not just as an excuse to open up a dusty building once a week, but as a demonstration of something that we believe to be true. God's presence was among us, and God does not flee from creation, but draws close when there is hardship. And for us, this means we want to maintain meeting with communities of faith, whether we do so with formal liturgies in tall spired church buildings or in YMCA community rooms and houses. Like this new identity name for the disciples, the communion itself doesn't come with a name badge, but a spiritual one. For thus, this means understanding that our personal realities are not erased when we join with the people of God, but brought into fullness because of our identity as Christians. We are more ourselves than we have ever been when we live like Christ. Those best selves are going to look a million different ways. And like their common touchstone of compassion, we understand Jesus' instruction 
to remember what has been forgiven, and out of that, not to inhibit others from receiving it, even if we don't think they've earned it. For us, this means allowing Christ to be the judge, keeping our own forgiveness as a point of gratitude rather than a point of pride. I want to be really clear, this is not a sermon titled, Come Back to Church, Wandering Sheep. The sermon isn't about, why don't you prioritize our church community more? It's not the message of this story. It's not the message of the disciples. Instead, I hope that this text leads us to understand our own need for spiritual community, especially when things are hard. Even if they're not hard for you, if they're hard for your community, that makes it your problem. And spiritual communities are found in churches, but often found far outside it. But one doesn't preclude the other. If we know that we often find ourselves in places of challenge, with problems inside our control and lots of problems outside of it, then Jesus' instruction is for us to gather, to remain in community, to recognize the forgiveness that binds us together. By following the disciples into this new world, one where Jesus would be dead and then raised, we can also follow them into the creation of new spiritual communities whose focus and mission are one thing. Christ, our welcoming host. Jesus, whose followers are of every kind. The Savior, who offers forgiveness for all. You've been listening to me, Pastor Kana Moore, at Hayes Christian Church. Hayes Christian Church is a non-denominational fellowship in Hayes, Kansas. We are supported by the generosity of our members, attenders, and friends. The financial support we raise goes to projects which further spread the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus, to those local, national, and international missions, and they help keep these podcasts free. If you would like to share a monetary gift with us, please visit our website at hayeschristianchurch.org and click on the donate button, or you may mail your gift to P.O. Box 1111, Hayes, Kansas, 67601. If you have any questions, comments, or would like more information, we would love to hear from you. Simply go to our website and click on the Contact Us form. Thank you for your generosity, and may God bless you as you seek to follow Him.